Good morning. How are you? Good? I think you're about to be better because we are going to look at some sweet truth today. Yes. Can you do that at church? Yeah, I think you can. This is family, right? This is an authentic place of worship and truth. Second Thessalonians this morning. Second Thessalonians. We are in chapter one. A big thanks to Brother Chad, who got us off to a great start and showed us the big idea, the outline, where we're headed, the backstory, and here we are. I'm going to read from Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll read all those verses. And so this is the reading of God's Word. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and your love, the love of all of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And he will give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the Civil War. I like studying it. I'm a bit of a nerd. And I love... Amen. Because you're one too? Because you know I am. The Civil War Union General Sherman was on the march to Chattanooga, to Atlanta, and then from Atlanta to the sea. He was on his way. However, the impetuous, the pushy Confederate General Hood had marched into the rear. He got right behind Sherman and he was threatening his communications and the base supplies at Chattanooga and Nashville. An important link to these communications was Alatuna, which commanded the pass through the mountains. Well, this post was at once attacked by the Confederate Hood and his army, so Sherman sent an order to one of his lieutenants, whose name was Corse, to proceed ahead to this key place of communication, Alatuna. He himself, though, Sherman went way back up into the Keesaw Mountains, and from the height of the mountain on a clear October day, he could see plainly the smoke of the battle down below. He could hear the faint reverberation of the cannons. 
And his flag officer was motioning with a light out. He was motioning out the letters to the garrison in Alatuna. And this is what it said. Lieutenant Course has made it safely here. Well, this was a great relief to Sherman, who then signaled himself back to them at the fort this famous message. Hold the fort. I am coming. Hold the fort. I'm coming. Well, a young officer from Sherman's army related this incident to P.B. Bliss, who was a famous evangelist in the day. And taking this incident for his inspiration, Bliss wrote the once well-known hymn, Hold the Fort, for I am coming. Hold the Fort, for I am coming. Well, that hymn has genuine Christian truth all over it, doesn't it? The church is to occupy and to stand firm until Christ comes. The, the church will be assailed and besieged by the world and by its enemies, the enemies of truth. But Christ has not left us without a promise. A promise which means deliverance, justice, vindication, victory. It's, it's coming. From the ramparts of heaven, he waves to us a message. Here in this text, I'm coming. Hold the fort. Confident in his great appearance, this early church here could occupy and stand firm and persevere until the end. And so this is the story that unfolds before us in this passage. Paul speaks to a very young church, weeks, months old, but he sees God's grace clearly at work in their lives. He sees their perseverance, perseverance, faith, and love growing and increasing in a baby church. We have no excuse. And so these Thessalonian Christians, they have made a decision. They've crossed the line. They have said, we will be followers of this king. They made a decision. They gave their allegiance to a heavenly king. And so this decision would put them on a collision course with their culture, with the Roman Empire. Living for King Jesus in a land where Caesar was to be declared as Lord and worshipped, this spelt severe persecution, like we can't even imagine. But as we'll see, they remained steadfast for the Lord Jesus because they had a great hope. They had a certain hope, not a hoping kind of hope, but a knowing kind of hope that Jesus was coming. Hold the fort, I'm coming. And so when he returns all fortunes, they will be reversed. Vindication for the people of God, for the martyrs of God, it's coming. Justice is coming. For us, rest and relief is coming. Even in the teeth of suffering, they knew it was better to align themselves with a righteous and good judge who holds the future in his hands. This is a message I think we need right now. There's a reason we chose this series, because we're heading into difficult times. They're coming. They're coming. We are in the last days. And so his return, which I certainly think is an imminent return, a rapture for the church, and his second coming, which will come later, I think these, these truths of his return to give his church rest and take them home and to come and bring justice to the enemies of God, this is what will be the ground for our perseverance. We need this hope. We need to take the long view. We need perspective in the middle of the battle and the storm or else we'll fall apart. We'll turn back. We'll shake our fist at God. We'll get angry. We'll lose hope. We have to have this knowledge Sound doctrine is so important. So hold fast. Stand firm. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we dig in. Father, as we'll see in this passage, apart from your constant grace in our lives, we would not know you, and we would not be under construction, becoming more like Jesus.
We need you every day. We need to abide. We need to lean into you in these trials, in these difficult times, so that you can produce faith in us and love and hope. Help us as we see Paul praising you for their perseverance to want to persevere like them. Help us as we see Paul giving them hope to cling to the very same hope of your righteous return. And help us to pray for our own hearts as we see Paul praying for their perseverance. Do great things in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So really, three points. What you see in these 12 verses. First, he is talking to a a church in difficult times. What does he say? He's going to talk about their perseverance as believers. And there's an implicit challenge for us. Are we looking like this in difficult times? Are we growing in faith? Are we increasing in our love for God and each other? Are we persevering, running race, standing firm, holding the fort? But also, he reminds us that there is a righteous judge on the horizon. He's returning. And so with that truth in mind, that future grace in our perspective, it helps us to persevere. We need that. And then he concludes with a prayer that they will be found worthy. Not that they could be worthy in their own works and effort, but he knows that God's grace is going to have to constantly be working in and through them so that they can arrive in the kingdom, having lived a life worthy of their new calling and their citizenship. So first, verses three through four, he talks about the perseverance of the believers. He's praising God for their perseverance. So in verses one and two, he greets his friends and he speaks of God's grace that he gives us. And then he bursts into thanksgiving and praise for the saints, which, notice, are all the believers. Every Christian is a saint, a set-apart one. And these new believers in Thessalonica, they need to know that what God's doing in them is an encouragement to all the churches. Paul is clearly detecting in them that God is doing something in their midst. He praises God for his work in their lives. He sees spiritual progress, sanctification, spiritual maturity, growth in their lives, in spite of the fact that they're in the teeth of the suffering, they're still flourishing and growing. They're not getting mad. They're not getting bitter. They're not running from God. They're not biting and devouring each other. They're actually increasing in their faith, confidence in God, and they're starting to love each other so well. Man, what if we were growing in our confidence in God? What if we let the world know we're different by the love we had here for each other? And I'm already encouraged by the love I've received from you. But there's growing faith, he says. He says their faith is making strides. They're more confident in King Jesus than ever before in the midst of these hard times. The hard times are pressing them into Jesus instead of them running from God and going, God must not care because bad things have happened. They're going, God is sovereign over these trials. They're confident of promises like Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Did you know that God takes all things all things, even bad things, into his sovereign hand and he makes it into a servant for his glory and for your good. I mean, if you believe that, I think you'd have some equilibrium, some bounce in the midst of your trials. I know it helps me to remember these truths. So they're drawing near to God. They're not questioning his sovereignty. They're not questioning his love. I'm sure there are doubts that arise like they do for all of us, but overall, they are leaning on God in the trial. Trusting God for their daily needs, trusting God to use the trials for his glory and their good. And they're abounding, increasing in love, it says. Their love for God, certainly, and for others is abounding. 
It's a clear witness to everyone. No one guesses. This is not a bickering, fighting, fighting church. Suffering can make people bitter. Hard times can, can make us question God and push away from God and run from God. But you know what? When, when suffering is mixed with God's grace, when suffering is mixed with our faith in Him, it produces love. One writer said, when Christians suffer, their faith reaches up towards God and then their love reaches out, outward to fellow believers. Something to remember as we enter difficult times. Behold, one writer quotes, he says, behold how they love one another. That was the confession of the pagan world as they beheld the miracle of Christian fellowship. Look at them. There's something different about them. Look at how they love one another. Well, they will know us by our love. They will want what we have, but only Christ can produce that fruit in in you, so you better draw closer to Christ. The growing faith, the increasing love was in fact an answer to Paul's prayer. He had prayed back in 1 Thessalonians, a previous letter, chapter 3, he prayed that their faith would grow and that their love would increase, and God is answering this prayer. They're growing in faith and increasing in love. Look at verse 4. But what did this growth in faith and love amount to? In short, it spelled perseverance. They were persevering. He he doesn't just praise their perseverance. He says, I see what your perseverance looks like. There's some life in you. I see faith. I see love. This is what perseverance looks like. It's not just holding on, closing your eyes and holding on by your fingernails and going, I hope this is over soon. It's actually living in faith and loving people, serving people. He'll, He'll talk in verses 11 and 12 about how they are full of good works and kindness and every impulse to do good he prays they will do. That's what perseverance should look like. It's not just huddling up here and hanging on. It's, it's trusting God and going out. Paul says, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So the churches are hearing about this and God's being praised. May that happen here. God never wastes suffering. Trials work for us in God's sovereign hands, not against us in his sovereign hands. God is using these trials in their lives to refine their faith. He's producing spiritual endurance. You know what Paul says. You know what James says. James 1, consider pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith is producing something, perseverance. Now let that perseverance, you have a choice, let that perseverance have its full work. Stay under the trial. Keep running the race. Let that person perseverance have its full work so that you might be mature and complete. So the trials are opportunities for refinement and spiritual maturity. So if we, again, press into God, he'll do great things in our lives, in our life here. And so I love what one writer said. He said, remember this, it takes many years and many storms to build a mighty oak. He's building mighty oaks here through the trial. Don't run from God in the trial, run to him. This suffering was purifying the church, strengthening their faith, producing love, and in turn, this perseverance was encouraging all the churches. And so God is praised for the faith and love he is producing in these believers. See, Christianity isn't pull yourselves up by your moral bootstraps. Be good, love more. It's you draw near to Jesus and he'll produce good works and fruit in your life. Keep drawing near to the Lord. Spend time with him every day. Pray, talk to him every 15 minutes. Be talking to him constantly. And as you abide in him, 
he'll bear much fruit. Apart from him, though, we can do nothing. Remember that Pauline, Paul's triad of faith, hope, and love. We know it well. We, we hear it elsewhere in Paul. Faith, hope, and love. Well, that was a virtue that characterized these believers. He mentions it back in 1 Thessalonians. You were characterized by faith and hope and love. But here, you notice in verses 3 and 4, he, he gives thanks for faith and love. Where's hope? Why is it missing? Well, perhaps it's because they are confused about the future at this point. There's some bad teaching. They're being misled. What does the future hold? Have, have we missed the rapture? Has, are we in the tribulation period? I mean, look at all the suffering. What does the future hold? And so he will inform their hope now. And so this leads us to the next section, verses 5 through 10. The next section. What does he say to a church in hard times? Well, first he says, I praise God for perseverance. Keep persevering. Now he says, take the long view. Here is your hope. He's going to talk about God's justice now. There's justice coming for the enemies of God, and there's relief coming, vindication coming for you who are being faithful to King Jesus. So he would remind us of our future hope, and that's what we're here to do today, is to take the long view and see the message from the mountaintop where he says, I'm coming, hold the fort, stay firm, persevere. I'm coming. Here's what the future holds. So in these verses, God comforts his people, doesn't he? With the just judgment of God. We don't like to talk about God as judge. It's not popular. It's not cool. But the Bible is very clear. God's a judge. And actually, it's good news. It's bad news if you're an enemy of God. But it's good news if you're the people of God. God is a judge. In the Old and New Testament. He's also loving in the Old and New Testament. He doesn't change. He's a just and holy God. God's judgment is looming on the horizon. They need to remember this as they're in the middle of the trial. He comforts them with the just judgment of God, which will involve punishment for those persecuting the church and reward and rest for those who are faithful. Hold the fort, I'm coming soon. Verse five, he says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is just and right. All this is evidence that God's judgment is just, God's judgment is right. All this, what is he referring to? I think he's referring back to what he's already talked about. Their perseverance, all this love and faith, this growth, your steadfastness in the trial, it's evidence of something. It's evidence that God is at work in you and that God's judgments are right. Their faith and love expressed in the face of persecution is evidence. It's a manifest token that God's judgment is right. What is God's judgment? Well, look at verses 6 and 7. It's laid out right there. His judgment, his justice, his, his just righteousness is this. Verse 6, he will judge the persecutors of God's people. He will justly judge the wicked. He will pay them trouble for the trouble they've given God's people. God's judgment is right. Verse 7, he will bring relief to the persecuted. He will bring rest to his people. That's God's righteous plan and judgment. And all this is evidence that God is working in you, that you're already his people, and that he's going to bring you through to the kingdom. He'll vindicate you and he'll judge your enemies. So verse 5 is evidence that God is on their side. All this, look at what he's doing in your life right now. This is evidence that God's on your side and he's against the persecutors. Well, their faith and love indicates that God's at work in them. God is granting them the grace to endure now, even in the face of persecution. So he is clearly on their side, working to make them fit for that entrance into the kingdom. 
He is sanctifying them. And I'll tell you what, it's Philippians 1, 6, right? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's at work in you now. You see his righteous judgments are being carried out. He's on your side and he will vindicate you. And your enemies, what a reversal is coming. They'll be surprised. The wicked who prosper now will be swept into terrors. Psalm 73. Their God enabled them to persevere. And this is evidence of God's righteousness. It makes me think of Philippians 1. In Philippians 1.28, there's a similar idea. Paul says to the Philippians who are being persecuted in the Roman world, he says, you Philippians are not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The fact that God's working in you and you're persevering, you're standing up for King Jesus is a sign of their destruction. God's at work in you. He's on your side. It's a sign of their destruction though. I like what uh, William McDonald says. He says things so simply. Verse 5. The fact that they are standing up so bravely under the persecutions and afflictions was an indication of the righteous dealings of God. He was supporting them, strengthening them, encouraging them, those who suffer on behalf of the kingdom here. And it shows that they're among those who will reign with him in the coming day. What would Paul have these afflicted believers know? What would he have us know? How might he inspire us to continue in steadfastness? Your God is just. He'll make all things right in the end. Even when times are not just, your God is. Keep your eyes fixed on your holy, just, and righteous judge. On the future, justice come. The king is coming. Relief is coming. Take the long view, brothers. Take the long view, sisters. This is the content of your hope. Verse 6, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. The righteous judgment of God is seen in the punishment for the persecutor. Recompense. The wicked who persecute the godly do not always receive just judgment now. Let's be honest. We see the wicked prospering right now, don't we? We do. In every age, the, the wicked prosper and the righteous start to question, is it worth living a righteous life? Have you ever read Psalm 73? Read Psalm 73. I don't know if you remember... Uh, Mr. Catron used to teach at Emmaus. Um, as he was in his last days due to cancer, he preached from Psalm 73 and left that gift with his students. Asaph is stumbling and he's questioning, is it worth living for the Lord? I've always said God is good to Israel, but now I'm kind of questioning it because I see the wicked prospering and, and here I am living for the Lord and I'm going through hard times. But he finally comes to the temple and he gets clarity. He sees the truth which is what we're doing here. He gets clarity. And then Psalm 73, verse 18 and following, he says this about the wicked who right now are prospering. However, surely you place them on slippery ground. Their, their, their ground, their standing isn't as firm as they think. They're on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they will be destroyed, completely swept away by tares. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. They prosper now, but there will be judgment later. We need perspective, don't we? When everything around us, our experience and feelings lie to us, we need truth. So we go here. They may have ease in this life, but judgment is coming for the wicked. And I don't say this with glee. This is a somber moment. 
because this is the justice of God on people we may even rub shoulders with. In your present trouble, remember that a day of justice is coming for those who are persecuting God's people. Do you know what this means to the majority of Christians around the world who are being jailed, losing their jobs, being persecuted, facing martyrdom? Can you imagine what this means to them? We don't feel it because we really have pretty easy lives, pretty tame, docile lives. But can you imagine what this means? What will it mean to our children? I wonder if they'll face this kind of persecution in the years to come. Or will we? I won't be surprised. As Christians facing suffering now, we must live with an eternal vantage point. Keep your eyes on the justice to come. He will make all things right. There were two farmers, one a believer and the other was an atheist. When harvest season came, the atheist taunted his believing neighbor because apparently God had not blessed him too much. The atheist family was healthy. His fields were rich with harvest. And he was sure to make a lot of money. I thought you said it would pay to believe in your God and to be a Christian. I thought you said it would pay, said the atheist. It does pay, replied the Christian, but God doesn't always pay his people in September. Their judgment is coming. Our relief is on the horizon. Let that strengthen your spirit. Relief and rest. That's the glorious truth on the other side of the coin of God's return. There is glorious rest for us. Verse 7, God is just and he will give relief to those who are troubled. Your best days are yet ahead. This is the worst it's going to be for you, believer. Keep running the race. The best is on the horizon. Hold the fort. He's coming. When will this happen? Specifically, verse 7, this justice. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed. See, this, I, I do think we're looking for an imminent return, and we don't have time to go into that debate. But I do think at the end of that tribulation period, when God's enemies remain, Christ will come again. And of course, we believe that Christ will take first his church and and that there will be a final judgment at the end. But this return, we're told in verse 7, is a revelation, an unveiling. He is hidden from our view now, and many deny his existence, But one day there will be no doubt. He will be revealed. He will have a very personal, very public, and universal return. It will have universal effects. Everyone will know. One day, you know, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess. Jesus isn't some local deity. He's a universal king and he's coming. And he's going to make all things right. He will return in the glory of his angels who do his bidding and in flaming fire. He will come from heaven, it says. This indicates the nature of the divine task. It's just that it's a divine task. This isn't man's vindication. This isn't man's vengeance. This is God, a holy God who has been offended by sin. We've committed idolatry. We've put everything in front of the gift giver, and we've loved the gifts more than him. We have not obeyed him. We have not loved him. We have We have gone after idols and false lovers of our souls. And he returns and he reveals himself and he comes from heaven. It's a divine judgment. He comes from heaven. He comes with his divine 
angelic angels who will carry out his will. And the majesty of his appearing is compared to him coming with flaming fire. Often in the Old Testament, a symbol of divine presence. Also, a picture of divine wrath, just anger towards sin. Judgment will soon be unleashed is the point. And then verses 8 and 9, Paul moves on to the administration, the enacting of this just judgment of Christ. He will punish those. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He's the Lord Jesus. He, he deserves his due, his allegiance. And he will punish those who do not know him and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Again, I don't take this lightly. He will punish the unbeliever. The word for punish here doesn't convey some human vindictiveness. Rather, this is the enactment of an unwavering justice, unwavering justice. He's inflicting full justice. Often it's used in the context of putting justice on the criminal, those who, who deserve this. They've, their wages for their sin is death. Justice, you understand that God's just anger is a reflex of his holiness. This isn't arbitrary. It's not random. He is holy. He is set apart. He's in a class by himself. He is holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. He is above us. He's an infinite being. And there's an infinite moral chasm between us and a holy God. In Isaiah 6, when a prophet comes face to face with a holy God, what happens? He doesn't strut into God's presence. He doesn't say, well, you know my heart. He condemns himself. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It becomes clear when you stand in the pure light that you need God's grace otherwise. So justice is a reflex of God's holy character. He is set apart from sin. There is no dark side in God. There's no moral pollution. He is the standard. Our ethics, our virtues, He is the standard. We should love because He's love. We should tell the truth because He is truth. So while God is loving, the Bible's very clear on that, He is also holy and He pours out just anger on sin and evil. That is really good news, actually. In a world full of injustice, we need to know that all things will be made right. There is perfect equity and justice coming. Don't be mistaken. We question, where's, where's God? It's so unfair. Why do bad things happen? All you have to do is look at the cross. And there you see that God says no to evil. And you look at that cross and you also see that God says yes to us. God does care about righteousness. So much so that when he forgives us, he doesn't compromise his justice. Someone dies for our sin so that he can now lavish us with grace. A quick qualification on God's wrath because I know it's not a popular idea. It's offensive to the, to the modern mind. God's wrath. It's not capricious. So I've told you before about my dad before he knew Jesus. He was a drinker. He was a gambler. He was not a good guy. <laughs> he was a nice guy. But he was controlled by his passions. And so he'd come home from golfing and drinking all day, and he'd be sweet for a minute, and then he'd blow up on you. It's like his anger, his temper was on a short fuse. You walked on eggshells around dad. You didn't know when he was about to blow up on you. Is that what God's like? Capricious, angry, 
unpredictable, like one of the gods of the myths? No. Here's what God's wrath is like in the Old and New Testament. It is his settled, controlled, personal hostility towards sin and evil. Praise God. God tells us what stirs his anger, and he tells us very clearly. It's not a surprise. Sin and evil. And sin is when you go against God's very character. Sin isn't just breaking some random rules. Sin is going against who God is. Sin's a big deal. The majority of verse 8 is concerned with the identity, though, of those who will face this judgment. Those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, there is a debate. Are these two different groups, those who don't know God and then those who don't obey the gospel? At this point in my study, I would say, I think it's actually just one group. There's a parallelism here. Those who do not God, do not know God are also those who have not obeyed the gospel. In, in Romans 1 through 3, Paul writes like a prosecuting attorney. He's making a case against all mankind, and all mankind, Jew and Gentile, are on the stand. And in the end of his argument against mankind, his case, he, he says, he concludes concerning the religious and the irreligious, the non-religious, in chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one, by God's standards. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God not on God's terms. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then he concludes at the end. Your honor, I conclude, Romans three twenty three. for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ do not know God and have not yet responded to the gospel, the good news concerning the crucified and risen Jesus. The gospel, Paul tells us what the gospel is in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the good news that I preached to you by which you were saved is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. How does one obey the gospel? What does that mean? How, how do you obey the gospel so you do not suffer this judgment? To obey the gospel, is, I think it simply means to repent and believe. Jesus said in John 6, the work of God is this to believe in the one whom he has sent. That's the work of God. Believe, trust in the Jesus who died for your sins and the one that Jesus, the one that God validated by raising him from the dead, that's the one you put your faith in. To obey the gospel means to repent and believe. See, the gospel is a message of good news, but it's more than a message. It's also an invitation from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's an invitation. And to reject that gospel is to be disobedient to the royal invitation. Let me just leave you with some important passages. John three, eighteen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. They have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And a few verses later, chapter three, this is John three, sixteen, right? A few verses later. John three thirty six, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Verse nine, what kind of future does the unbeliever face? They will be punished with everlasting destruction. That is a, an adjective that's debated. People want to say it doesn't mean forever, but 
in majority of contexts, it means everlasting. In this context, it's an everlasting destruction. Everlasting. It's not only that life in this age will be forever and ever. The idea behind this is that it will be a different quality of life. Eternal life is a different quality of life than eternal destruction. All of this needs to be borne in mind when we consider that Jesus teaches that eternal life is knowing God. This is eternal life that you know the Father and His Son whom He sent. That's eternal life. It's knowing God, being in the presence of God. And so eternal destruction here is eternal. It's the opposite of eternal life. It's eternal destruction. It's the end of all that is worthwhile. It's ruin, eternal ruin. But it's the opposite of enjoying God's presence. They'll be separated from His presence, it says. And that's the final disaster. Jesus lovingly warns us a warning is loving. He speaks of it regularly. He warns us of hell, of judgment, and he speaks of the place where the devouring worm never dies and the flames are never quenched. Mark 9. He warns us lovingly in Matthew 25, outer darkness. It's a place of outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He goes on at the end of Matthew 25 and he says, they will go to eternal punishment, the wicked and the righteous to eternal life. Eternal life, the same adjective applied to eternal destruction. To those who would say, I cannot believe that a loving God would judge sinners and send people to hell. I understand that feeling inside of you. But if we say that, we do not understand the holiness of God nor the awfulness of sin. Sin is a cosmic offense. It's a cosmic treason against God's very nature. I will hate them in the presence of a God of love. I will tell lies and deceive in the presence of a God who's truth. God is love. He is good, but he's not safe. He is also light. And in his holiness, he must punish sin. The good news, though, now the good news sounds pretty good, right? The good news is that we see both that justice and that love of God all in one place at Calvary. At the cross, you see God's justice. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug as in other religions. He deals with the justice. He pours it on his son. Someone dies for sin. He shows his justice. But at that same place, someone dies for my sin and yours. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. He says, it is finished. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we need not be. <laughs> and so the gospel is good news. John 1.12, I shared this with a young lady here the other night at youth group, and she appropriated it and made it her own. I quoted John 1.12. To as many as believed on his name, to as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And she did that. And then she went and celebrated with her friends and her youth leaders because it's something to celebrate. Can't you see that the warning is love? And so really, as I close, there are just two extremes here. I want to be sensitive to this. I don't want to take this lightly, what we're talking about. There are two extreme reactions that we must be careful of. The first would be to ignore to, to be among those who find the judgment of God on Christ's rejecter so distasteful that we, we can't bring ourselves to believe it or think about it and we dismiss it, even though Jesus and the apostles plainly teach it. We can't do that. We also must not take the other extreme and have a kind of pathological pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
We can't do that because in Ezekiel 33, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So there must be compassion as we talk about these things. I take Paul as my model, who in Romans 9 thinks of his unsaved kinsmen, his fellow Jews who reject the Messiah, and he says, I weep for my people. I weep for them. And I would be cut off for their sake. I don't know if I can say that, but I pray that God will help me leap, not leap, but weep for the, for the lost. Pray for them and share with them and serve them and care for them. There's a motivation for evangelism and prayer. And so he concludes it. He calls it all together. And he, he basically in verses 11 through 12 leaves them with a prayer because he knows that if they're going to persevere and continue to be full of faith and love, if they're going to, in the words of uh, verse 11, if they're going to act on every desire for goodness, if they're going to do good deeds prompted by faith, he, he knows that he's going to have to pray for them, that God's going to have to do this in them. So that reminds me that if he's praying for them, we should pray for ourselves. Lord, help me to do good works out of faith. Help me to increase in my love. Help me to stand fast. Apart from you, I can do nothing. And so pray for each other. Pray for your heart. Pray for our youth that God will help them to believe these things, hold on to these things, and live this out to be worthy of this calling we've been given. Father, we thank you for your word. It is refreshing. It breaks us. It comforts us. Lord, help us to persevere in love and faith. Help us to keep the long view, to remember your justice and the vindication coming. Help us to love the lost. Help us to pray for our own hearts that we would be worthy citizens marked by good works for each other and for the world outside. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.